Well, once again, good morning. As always, it is a great honor and privilege uh, to be entrusted with the preaching of God's gospel. It is my hope this morning as we go through the text that you would hear the gospel and in hearing that you would believe it to the good of your soul and to the glory of God. Further, I also want to wish a happy Father's Day to all of the fathers in the room. And uh, brothers, my prayer for you is that God would grant you grace to walk worthy in that most important role, and that in so doing, you'd be well-pleasing to him and a blessing to your family. And also, as we prayed, I also would pray that everyone in this room would be obedient to the fifth commandment, that you would honor your father and your mother. And so may we this day be careful to obey that holy commandment. And remember that Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Well, this morning we're going to be picking up where we left off last week at Malachi. And so I do invite you to turn with me to Malachi chapter 2. And our text this morning will be verses 1 through 16. And the title of today's sermon is Jesus, the Faithful Priest. And we're going to look at how he is the covenant keeper. Let's read the word of God, which is able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. We'll begin in verse number one and read down through verse number 16. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces and dung on your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Thus the reading of God's holy and infallible word and his people said. Let us pray and ask God's blessing on his word as it is preached. Holy Father, as we have just read your word, we have been confronted with the reality that you do not tolerate sin. Father, help us to be brought to a clearer understanding of the sinfulness of sin. 
Lord, do not allow us to think lightly of our sin. Pray that you would grant us the conviction of our sin. But also, Lord, I would pray that as we contemplate your holiness and your hatred of sin, that we would also be reminded that in your great love, you provided a Savior on our behalf. One who was sinless, who perfectly kept every jot and tittle of your holy law. And Lord, grant us the assurance that if we be united to him by faith, that we shall be forgiven of our sin and counted righteous in your sight. And Father, I do pray as, as we contemplate our conquering Savior, that we would cry out with the angels and with the spirits of just men made perfect. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Father, may your Son be magnified this morning. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this week we are picking up where we left off last week. And I wanted to take just a few moments to, to first remind you of the theme of this book and the goal of this sermon series. Secondly, to reorient you to the historical context of the book of Malachi. And then thirdly, to recap from last week God's plan to address the spiritual condition of his covenant people. So first to remind you of the overarching theme of this book and the goal that I'm seeking to accomplish in this short series. Last week we stated that the whole of the Bible is telling one glorious message about God's redemptive and covenantal love for his people in Christ. That's what the Bible is about. The whole of the Bible is telling that one glorious message and therefore the very essence, the very warp and woof of the faith that has been once and for all delivered to the saints is the message of God's redemptive and covenantal love for his elect people in Christ. And understanding this, dear ones, listen, this is not just for preachers and teachers to get. This is for all of us. We must understand that in all of our study of the scripture, that this overarching message must be the controlling factor in our understanding of what we're reading. Brothers and sisters, my desire is that you would be looking for God's redemptive and covenantal love for you in Christ on every page of Scripture. That is absolutely essential. 2 Timothy 3 makes it clear that the Scriptures are able to make a man wise unto salvation. But how do the Scriptures make a man wise unto salvation? Only insofar as they reveal the person and work of Christ. If you would read the Scriptures in a way that would profit your soul, you must have one great aim, and that aim must be to find Christ in the text. Jesus once said to the Pharisees, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. The proper way to read the scripture is to see the covenant of grace, that is the way of salvation being offered to you by way of believing in Christ. And thus it follows that you can do all the exegesis and study of a text that you want, and you may even glean much insight from that endeavor, but if you do not find Christ in the text, then you've missed it. It would be like searching for a pearl of great price and only being left with the oyster in the shell. And so my desire in this sermon, and in every sermon that God would allow me to preach in my life, is that I would find Christ in the text and then show him to you. For he alone can save Spurgeon once famously said, No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Well, as we come to the study of the book of Malachi, my goal is to show that this book contributes to this overarching scriptural theme of God's redemptive and covenantal love in Christ by showing that God's covenant of grace originates in the love of the Father and that the conditions attached to his gracious covenant are not dependent upon the weakness of fallen men, praise God, but rather on the covenant-keeping Christ, resulting in the everlasting blessing of all those united to the Christ by faith. And I want to try and accomplish this goal by preaching the following four sermons from this book. Last week we looked at God's electing love in Malachi 1. This week we'll look at Jesus as the faithful priest in Malachi 2. Uh, next week we'll look at God's covenant faithfulness for Malachi 3. And then we will conclude by looking at the blessing of the covenant in Malachi chapter 4. 
Secondly, I want to reorient you to the historical context of the book of Malachi. Last week, I sought to show that Malachi was a prophet sent to the nation of Israel approximately 100 years after they had returned from exile. Further, we were reminded that although Israel was back in the promised land and had rebuilt their temple and had rebuilt their city, there were still a people that were under the thumb of the Persian Empire. And because they were still a weak nation under the rule of the Persian Empire and many decades had passed, the people of Israel began to lose hope that God was going to fulfill the promises that he had made. Promises such as the ones made in Jeremiah and Amos, which promised that God would restore the fortunes of his people, Israel. Now that, that is very important for us to grasp this context. You see, Israel had thought that God was going to make them into a great nation and not just restore to them their former glory, but that he would expand their glory and make them into the greatest nation on the earth. Well, the truth is they weren't wrong in thinking this. They just didn't understand the way that God was going to bring it to pass nor did they understand the nature of God's special, redemptive, covenantal kingdom. And so, in many ways, the people of Israel in Malachi's day were a disaffected people. They had begun to lose faith that God really did love them and that he would be faithful to his past promises. And so Malachi confronts a people skeptical of God's promises and therefore indifferent to live in the light of those promises and to worship the Lord their God with all their hearts, minds, and souls. And that's a good lesson for us today as well. Are we indifferent to live in the light of the promises of eternal life? Look at your life. Are you living in the light of those promises? Is it affecting the way that you live your everyday life? But thirdly, I want to quickly recap from last week, looking at how God in chapter 1 of Malachi address the awful spiritual condition of his covenant people, Israel. Last week, we looked at how God exposed the sins of the nation and the sins of the priests in particular. We looked at how God highlighted that the sins of Israel were especially heinous in light of God's special electing love for them. They were a people that were disdaining and spurning the very covenant love of God. They were a people that despised the holiness of God as evidenced by callous indifference to keeping the ceremonial law as God has prescribed to them on Mount Sinai. In chapter 1, verse 13, we see the attitude of the priests regarding the ceremonial law of God. They said that this law was a weariness to them, and they snorted at it. And last week we looked at how it was remarkable that God did not wipe them off the face of the earth for arrogantly committing capital crimes against the Lord by despising what he has regarded as most holy. In addition to this, last week we saw that although God severely rebuked the sins of Israel in chapter 1, he also gave glimpses into his plan to do something remarkable. He gave glimpses into the reality that his plan to address the issues of a nation that was largely apostate was not to bring an end to his covenant people, but rather to expand and magnify his gracious dealings with them. We saw in verses 11 and verse 14 that the amazing and gracious plan of God was to extend his special electing love beyond the borders of Israel to all the nations of the earth. And that in the process of doing so, he would institute a new and better covenant that would be perfectly suited to accomplish the gracious, redemptive purposes of God that find their genesis in eternity past within the very Trinitarian love and decree of God himself. Now, brothers and sisters, if that doesn't cause your hearts to well up with joy, then you may need to check your spiritual wrist for a pulse. The God that we serve is, an, is a God of unbending holiness, but he's also a God of mind-boggling grace. And we saw that last week in Malachi chapter 1. Well, with these things in mind, let us turn our attention back to chapter number 2. Now, our passage today can be divided fairly neatly into two sections. Verses 1 through 9 address the abuse of the covenant of Levi by the Jewish priest. And verses 10 through 16 
address the abuse of the marriage covenant in Israel. First, let us consider verses 1 through 9, which address the failure of the priesthood in Israel to keep the covenant of Levi. We'll begin by looking at verses 1 through 3. Now, these three verses contain one of the most graphic rebukes that God gives in Holy Scripture. These verses are a continuation of the blistering rebuke that God was delivering to the priest in chapter 1. And, and as blistering as this rebuke is, we must understand that God's response here to the state of the Jewish priesthood is not just in response to the priest of Malachi's day. You see, God is a patient God. Over and over again in the scripture, God reveals himself as a God who is slow to anger. And praise God that he is a God slow to anger. See, for two centuries, God had been warning and rebuking the Jewish priesthood. In Jeremiah, God described the priesthood as shepherds who were destroying and scattering the sheep of God's pasture. And he pronounces a woe upon them. That is, he solemnly warns that he will curse those who do this. In Ezekiel's day, he gives a similar rebuke to the priest or shepherds in Ezekiel 34. If you would, turn with me to Ezekiel 34. And notice verses 1 through 6. He says here, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, say to them even to the shepherds. Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you, you eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and, will, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. And then notice God's prophecy of what he will do in response to these wicked shepherds in verse number 10. He says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against these shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. And so, we see here that God is going to bring an end to this. He is not going to allow this to continue unabated forever. But as we've noticed in Malachi already, when God pronounces judgment, he also reveals his gracious purposes. Notice in Ezekiel 34, verses 15, and then verses 22 through 24. In verse 15, he says, in response to this, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. And then verses 22 through 24. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Now, this is an interesting prophecy by Ezekiel. See, Ezekiel made this prophecy several hundred years after King David had died. And so the clear reference here is that Jesus, the son of David, will be the one who will ultimately be the shepherd or the priest to the people of God. And so when we come back to Malachi 2, we see God doing something similar as to what he has done both in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We see him rebuking the priests of Israel once again. But here in Malachi, we see that there is a sense of finality in God's address to the priest. It is as if God is saying, I have been a God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but now I'm done. 
He says in verse 2 of Malachi 2, If you will not listen, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And then in the same verse he says, Indeed, I have already cursed them. This serves as God's last word of rebuke before he sends both the forerunner and the son of David himself in the New Testament, who will truly be a faithful priest and shepherd to the people of God. Now in verse 4, we see that God makes it known that the command that he has just uttered in verses 1 through 3 will come to pass, for it is founded upon God's covenant that he made with Levi. That is with the tribe of Levi, which of course we know is the tribe of the priest in Israel. Last week we had talked about how Israel as a whole was a, was a recipient of the special electing love of God. And thus for Israel as a whole to despise that love by saying, how have you loved us, was a great sin in the sight of God. But this week as we narrow our focus on the Jewish priesthood, we see them doing the exact same thing. You see, the tribe of Levi was specially chosen or elected by God. This tribe was set apart from all the other tribes. It was this tribe of Levi that God made a covenant with, and they were given the special and holy task of overseeing the meeting place of God with his people. They were given the task of representing the people before God. They were given the holy task of teaching and instructing the people in the ways of the Lord, and thus they were to be messengers of the Lord. They were given the task of overseeing the sacrificial system, which was God's appointed means of maintaining peace between himself and his people. And they were promised by God that as they were faithful in these holy duties, that God would ensure that they were provided for, thus receiving both life and peace from God himself. Thus, because the Levitical priesthood was despising God's special electing and covenantal love and choosing them to serve as priests, they were guilty of heinous sin in the sight of God. And because of this, God says to them, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. This leads us to verses 5 through 7. In these verses, God lays out what the priests were supposed to be doing by looking back to those who served faithfully. I think here there is especially in view the tribe of Levi as a whole at the occasion of the great sin of the people worshiping a golden calf in Exodus 32. If you remember that event, when Moses had come down from the mountain and the people were worshiping this golden calf, he had saw that the people had broken loose against God in idolatry. And do you, you remember what Moses said? He said, who is on the Lord's side? And who was it that came and stood by him? It was the sons of Levi. And as a result of their fear of the Lord and their faithfulness to him, Moses says to the sons of Levi in that same chapter, today you have been ordained to the service of the Lord. There's also the occasion in Numbers 25 when Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron, turned back the wrath of the Lord by spearing the man and the pagan woman who was with him, who were defiantly despising the one true God. In response to this event, we read in verses 10 through 13 of Numbers 25. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. And it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. And so as we consider this covenant of Levi, I don't think we can isolate this covenant to any one particular man, but rather this covenant was made with the Levitical priesthood. And in this covenant, they were chosen for a special role to uphold the glory and the honor and the holiness of the name of God, while at the same time they were to be a blessing to the people of Israel by teaching them to honor, worship, and obey the one true God. In verse 7 of chapter 2, we see a summary statement of what the Levitical priesthood was supposed to be. It says there, 
For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord. Now we turn our attention to verses 8 through 9. And here we clearly see that the point of this section is that God has convicted the priesthood with the sin of breaking the covenant of Levi. He says, you have turned aside from the way. That is, you have deviated from the stipulations of this covenant. And in doing so, God says to these priests, you have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi. Now, what an absolute crushing pronouncement of guilt upon these men. It's one thing to be guilty before the Lord for personal sin. It's another thing to be guilty of sin that has caused others to stumble. In fact, Jesus will say it, it would be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and you'd be cast into the sea than to cause one of God's children to sin. And that's what these priests were doing. And then in verse 9, we have the consequence of their sin pronounced upon the priest by God, who is the just and holy judge. He says, And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Now, I'm not done with this section. We will come back to it at the end. But I want to move forward and lay out the second section quickly which is the abuse of the marriage covenant in verses 10 through 16. And and then after doing that, I want to come back and draw out some applications from each section and then conclude with a statement on how we are to study the scriptures in a way that is most profitable to our souls. So let's move to verses 10 through 16. In these verses, we have in verse 10 a summary statement which is a rebuke from God. And then verses 11 through 16, two examples are given to drive home the point that is made in verse number 10. First, a summary statement. Let's read verse number 10. It says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Now, now what's the point being made here? Well, there is some debate as to whether the word Father here is referring to God or whether it was was referring to Abraham. Now, the way that the ESV renders it, it lends itself to the view that it is referring to God as Father, although I can see arguments for both views there. Nevertheless, I don't think either view greatly impacts the meaning here. The point here, I think, is this. It is saying that as God's covenant people, Israel was bound by God to be faithful to one another according to his law. We see this worked out in the second part of verse 10. It says, why then are we faithless to one another? profaning the covenant of our fathers. In other words, God is saying to the people of Israel, because I am your covenant God, because I am your creator and judge, and because you are my people, you must relate to your fellow man appropriately as those who must give an account before me. And I have this against you. You are not doing this. You are not being faithful to one another. You are sinning against against one another and consequently sinning against me. And then Malachi gives two examples of how the people of Israel are not being faithful in their human relationships. And he does this by focusing on the most precious and fundamental of all human relationships, which, of course, is the marriage covenant. And so in verses 11 and 12, we see that there were men in Israel who were marrying pagan women and thus directly breaking the covenant of God made with Israel. Deuteronomy 7.3 says it directly and plainly. Do not intermarry with them, the them being the daughters of pagan nations. Again, we see an example of the people of Israel seeming to open up the law of God and looking not how can we obey this law, but how can we break this law. Now, I'm going to come back to why this is such a big deal in a few minutes, Lord willing. But let's move to the second example of Israel's abuse of the the marriage covenant found in verses 13 through 16. Here the issue is plainly the unjustified divorcing of the wife of one's youth. We know that God makes legitimate allowances for divorce in certain circumstances, such as if one party commits adultery. 
But that's not the kind of divorce that is going on here. I think verse 16 explains what was going on quite well. Now, I do need to pause here because this is a verse that is translated differently depending on what translation of the Bible you might have. Uh, many translations here say that God hates divorce and that he also hates the man who covers his garments with violence. Well, I don't know much about the Hebrew language. Um, I do hope to take Hebrew 1 in the fall and maybe uh, I'll be better prepared to handle these sort of translation issues in the future. But in looking at the context of this particular passage, I do think that the ESV translation does a good job of capturing the issue. Notice how the ESV translates it in verse 16. There it says, For the man who does not love or hates his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. And so what this translation is saying is that God is rebuking the men of Israel who are divorcing their wives because of hate, because of the lack of love. God is saying that if a man does this, he covers his garments with violence, which I take to be a figure of speech, meaning that a man who unjustly divorces his wife has defiled his character. He is to be regarded as a wicked man. He is to be regarded as a covenant breaker. And so God says, guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless lest you defile yourself with this great wickedness. Now, at this point, I think at the very least, we have done a very quick, very fast, basic, grammatical, historical exegesis of the text. We have looked first at the abuse of the covenant of Levi by the priesthood. And secondly, we have looked at the, co at the abuse of the covenant of marriage by the Israelite men. We have at the very least stated what the text has said. Now, if I were to leave off right here, I would be, I would be guilty of failing to preach this text. If Spurgeon was to hear this sermon and I stop now, he would say, go home. And don't preach again until you have something worth preaching. And so now that we've heard the content of Malachi 2, verses 1 through 16, we must now, now ask the question, so what? Okay, you've told me that the priests in Malachi's day were breakers of the covenant of Levi, and you've told me that the men in Malachi's day were breakers of the marriage covenant. Well, what does that have to do with us sitting here in this room 2,400 years later? Well, brothers and sisters, these texts have much to do with, with us today. And I want to draw out for you some applications of this text and how we can profit from them today. First, I want to draw out of the text a practical application from each passage. First, let's look at verses 1 through 9. Now, what can we learn from this passage that has bearing on us today? Well, I think we can learn many things, but perhaps the most immediately practical application is that verses 5 through 7 serve as a picture of what an elder or pastor in the context of the New Covenant Church is to be like. Horatius Bonner, a Presbyterian minister from the 19th century, has written a wonderful little booklet entitled The Faithful Minister of the New Covenant. And I do encourage you to look up that, that um, resource. You can find it on Chapel Library. But this work of his, as he explains what a faithful pastor is to be like, he uses Malachi 2, verses 5 through 7 as his text. And in that work, he lays out the reality that the covenant of which the pastor ministers is one of life and peace. As the pastor preaches the gospel, he is preaching a message that brings eternal life and peace with God for all those who will receive that message in saving faith. Further, he makes the point that a faithful pastor is one who fears the Lord and one who stands in the awe, or stands in awe of the name of God. The faithful pastor is one who has true instruction in his mouth. Listen to this excerpt from this little work that expresses the heart of a faithful pastor when it comes to preaching truth. Bonner says, We must preach him wholly. We must preach him fully. We must preach him truly. We must not merely beware of denying him, but we must beware of setting, setting him forth imperfectly or even with cold exactness, as if unwilling to commend his worth 
by any expression of our esteem or love. We must not merely refrain from marring his beauty, but even from hiding or defacing the very hem of his garment. It must be a crime needing both repentance and forgiveness in the eyes of the God of truth to set forth amidst the character or work of him who is truth itself. It can be no trivial injury done to souls when we testify amiss of him who is the way, the truth, and the life, the door, the access, the new and living way to the Father's house, of, who, of him who is the sinner's hope, the sinner's surety and substitute, the sinner's peace, the sinner's high priest and advocate above. Oh, how infinitely momentous that in all that pertains to Christ and his work for sinners, true instruction should be in our mouths and no wrong must be found on our lips. It's a direct quotation from Malachi 2, verses 5 through 7. The point here, I think, is clear. Ministers of the new covenant are held to a high standard, even higher than the standard of the covenant of Levi. Further, in verses 5 through 7, we see something of the character that is required for a minister of the new covenant. In verse 6, the pastor must walk with God in peace and uprightness, and his manner of life, coupled with his true instruction, should turn many from iniquity. For the lips of a pastor should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord. So clearly we can see from this passage that an application that can be applied to us today is that the, is the, is that the high calling of the pastor is to be a servant used by God to bring life and peace to all who would trust in Christ. Secondly, let's look at verses 10 through 16. Let's look at a practical application from that passage. And I think we have two very clear applications from this passage. The first, from verses 10 through 12, is that believers, as believers, we are not to marry outside of the Lord. We are not to be unequally yoked. If you are a follower of Christ, you ought to marry one who is likewise a follower of Christ. Now, we have some young people here this morning who aren't married yet. Listen to the commandment of God. Do not marry outside of the Lord, for to do so is wicked in the eyes of God, and it will bring much heartache to your life. Just a very clear application from this passage. Marry within the context of God's people. Second, the second application has, also has to do with marriage. And that is, if you are married, you must not divorce your spouse for any reason not allowed by God. The common reasons that so many people give today, we have irreconcilable differences, whatever that means. We, I just don't love them anymore. We aren't compatible. These are not valid reasons for divorce. Brothers and sisters who are married, the text, I think, makes it clear that it is God who has brought you into this covenant of marriage. Notice verse 15. He says, did he not, he, key word there, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? Now, what's the point of that verse? It's to remind married couples that God is in your marriage. He brought you together. And therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Dear ones, God has given you your spouse. You are commanded to love your companion and your covenant partner. Do not hate your spouse and by so doing defile yourself before the Lord. That's a clear example or application from this passage. And beloved, we live in a day, we live in a time where divorce is common and it is celebrated. And so things are stacked against you culturally when it comes to being faithful to the spouse of your youth. And so as verse 16 will say, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You need to guard yourself in your spirit if you will be faithful to the wife of your youth. Now, so we have seen some, some practical applications from both of these passages. Now, I still have not preached this text. If I were to stop here, I would be failing in my calling as a minister of the new covenant. If you remember at the beginning of today's, of today's message, I said 
My desire is that in this sermon that I would find Christ in the text and show him to you, for he alone can save. And so now let us find Christ in the text. First, from verses 1 through 9. Turn our attention back to verses 5 and 7. And I want to remind you of what God prophesied in Ezekiel 34. If you remember, when when we read that text, God's plan to address the failures of the Jewish priesthood is that he would make his servant David to be the shepherd of the people. Well, as we look at verses 5 through 7 of Malachi 2, it is clear that what Malachi is doing is pointing forward to Christ, who would be that faithful priest, who would bring life and peace to all those in covenant with him. And so Jesus in his covenant faithfulness is the giver of life. Acts 3.15 says that Jesus is the author of life. Jesus speaking of himself says that he is the life. And in John 17, Jesus says that the Father has given the Son authority to give eternal life. Dear ones, Jesus in his covenant obedience has won life for all those who trust in him. You see that. That, that is what he's, that's what he has done in his covenant obedience. Adam was given a covenant, and if he, if he obeyed the covenant, he would win life for himself and his posterity. He failed. But Christ in his covenant obedience has won life for all those that he represents, all those that trust in him and place their faith in him. And so if you are a Christian here today, rejoice in Christ who is your life. And if you're not a Christian today, turn to Christ and live. Secondly, from this passage, we see that Jesus, in his keeping of the covenant, is the giver of peace. Isaiah calls him the Prince of Peace. Paul calls him the Lord of Peace who gives peace. And Jesus himself said to his disciples before his death, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Dear ones, would you have peace with God? Then turn to him in faith and receive from his omnipotent hand a peace that surpasses understanding. But that's what this passage is saying. Christ is the mediator of a covenant of life and peace. And he gives life and peace to all those united in him by faith. And so truly Christ is this mediator of a covenant that brings eternal life and a peace with God that can never be taken away. Further from this passage, we see that true instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. The father speaking of his son at the transfiguration said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Dear ones, would you listen to the son today? True instruction is in his mouth. And he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. As Peter rightly says in John 6, when Jesus asked if they would turn away from him like the other disciples, Peter said, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So dear ones, would you sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to his teaching? For for there never was a teacher like him, for he teaches as one who has all authority. And so listen to him, obey him. And not only is true instruction found in his mouth, there there was no wrong found on his lips. 1 Peter 2 verse 22 says, he committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Christ will never lead you astray. He will never cause you to stumble by his instruction. Follow him, for in following him is the way to eternal life. Further in this passage, we see that Jesus walked with God in peace and uprightness. He was that faithful high priest who knew no sin. He was the righteous one. And he has turned a multitude no man can number from iniquity. And he has led many sons to glory. Dear ones, if you are trusting in him today, he will lead you to glory as well. For through him we have been brought near to God. We have been granted access into the holy places by the blood of Christ. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us draw near to God in full assurance. Brothers and sisters, that is the point of this text. 
That's what this, that's what this text is all about. Jesus is the faithful priest. Jesus is God's plan to bring about his gracious, redemptive purposes. And so no matter what you get out of this text this morning, if you don't see Christ in the text, you've missed it. You must see Christ as the faithful priest and as the faithful minister of a new covenant. And you must trust in him, believing that his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If we are covered by the blood of Christ, we have been granted life and peace. For the blood of Christ purifies and sanctifies us forever. Amen. Well, now let us quickly look at verses 10 through 16. And I know the sermon's getting long, but we are, we're finding Christ in the text. So where is Christ in this text? Well, I think we see Christ in this passage both as the faithful husband and as the godly offspring. If you remember, this passage was dealing with the failures of the Israelite men to be faithful husbands. But we know that Christ, who is the husband of his bride, the church is not like these faithful men, but these faithless men. Christ is the true husband. And as it says in Ephesians 5, Christ loves his bride, the church. He loves his bride so much that he gave himself for her in both his perfect life and substitutionary death. Dear ones, the point is clear. If you would be saved, you must be united to this Christ who gave himself for the church. And you must submit yourself to him and be washed and sanctified by his word so that Christ would present you to himself on that great day of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Listen to the words of Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8. It says, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Dear ones, blessed is the one who is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the only way for that to happen for you is that you must be counted among the bride of Christ, which requires that you must repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ. And so as we look at the, the Israelite men who were faithless in their marriages, what we see is a picture of Christ, who is that true faithful husband. And if you would be saved, you must trust in him and him alone. And then finally, let us look at, look at this passage and see how, see how Christ is pictured for us in the godly offspring. Verse 15 says that what God was seeking in faithful marriages was godly offspring. Now, what is the significance of that statement? Is it that Christian couples would produce godly offspring? Well, I'm not, not, I'm not going to debate that. It is clear from Scripture that we are to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That is crystal clear. But is that the primary focus of this verse? I would say no. In the context of the Old Testament, we see time and time again that there is this theme of the offspring shot throughout. This is the reason for the careful genealogies which are recorded over and over again in the Old Testament. You see, God promised after the fall that the seed or offspring singular of the woman would crush the head of Satan. Abraham was promised that through his offspring singular, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. You see, what is going on here in the day of Malachi was that as a result of the Jews abusing the marriage covenant, they were in a very real way threatening the covenant promises of God. Men who went after pagan women were cutting off the godly line. They were cutting the line of Abraham off. Likewise, men who were unjustly divorcing their wives were also in effect cutting the line of Abraham off. But God, in his sovereign providence and in his sovereign mercy, did not allow for that line to be cut off. He preserved that line. Read the genealogy in Matthew 1 sometime and see the amazing providence of God in preserving the line of the Messiah. And as Galatians 3 makes plain, Jesus Christ was that godly offspring promised all the way back in the garden. And so... 
Dear ones, once again, no matter what you get from this text, you have to see Christ. In this text, we see that even this rebuke against the Israelites for their abusing of the covenant of marriage was ultimately the gracious hand of God preserving the line so that his son, in the fullness of time, would be born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So would you have salvation? Then you must be united by faith to that godly offspring, to that seed of the woman that God graciously promised all the way back in Genesis 3, 15. So even in that text when he's rebuking these faithless men, in the heart of God, he sees you and he loves you. You are in his mind and his heart because it is only through the, the sending of his son, that godly offspring, that you would be saved. It was a result of his covenant love for you that started before time began that he gave this rebuke. And so in conclusion, the main point that I wanted to make for you this morning was this. Christ and his gospel is the primary focus of the message of Scripture. When you read the Scriptures, you must train your eyes to look for Christ. Do we need practical principles, principles to live by? Absolutely. I do not want to minimize that. We need practical principles to live by, and the Word of God gives us those principles. But as we've studied Malachi 2 today, if I allowed you to walk out of here and all I told you was that pastors need to be faithful and that you need to be faithful in your marriages, then I would have failed you. First and foremost, what you needed to see from these passages today was Christ. And in seeing him, that you would turn to him in faith. For he is the faithful priest. He is the faithful husband. And he is that godly offspring promised in Genesis that would crush the head of Satan and in so doing bring many sons to glory. Let's pray. Holy Father, we do... bow in humble amazement and adoration of your great covenant love. Father, we are amazed that you have provided a way of salvation to us, that you have done so in, in spite of, of so much sin in this world, even sin among your covenant people. Father, my great desire is that as we look at this passage, this word that come from your very mouth, that we, would, that we would see your son and that in seeing him, that we would be drawn to him in faith, that we'd be drawn to him in love and that we would submit ourselves to him, that we would trust our very souls, our very destiny to him knowing that if we are in his hands, we are in good hands. So, Father, I would pray that your people would, would see Christ today. And I pray also that if there be any in this room that does not know Christ, that as we have sought to show him from the text, they have seen him and would turn to him in faith even this day. And this to the praise of your glorious grace, which is made available to all who would trust in your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you would please stand, and we'll sing together hymn number 187, Before the Throne of God Above. Mm -hmm.